and welcome to episode 5 of the Video Essay Podcast. I'm your host, Will DeGravi, and on today's show, I sit down with Jacob Swinney to discuss his essay, First and Final Frames, the essay, The Art of Overanalyzing, By Now You See It, and Jacob's work and approach to making videographic work. Now, before we get to the interview, I'd like to share some news from the world of video essays. First, be sure to check out the latest issue of In Transition, the first academic journal dedicated to videographic criticism. And on October 12th, there will be an event at the Birkbeck Institute of the Moving Image in London entitled Repetition and Variation, Video Essays as Comparative Film and Television Studies Methodologies. More information on both can be found at our website, thevideoessay.com. Also, I'd like to share a project that has been started by Ariel Avisar from Tel Aviv University and Evelyn Krutzer from Northwestern University called Once Upon a Screen. What they're asking folks to do is create video essays dealing with film scenes that traumatized them as children. Evelyn made a video essay on Psycho and the Witches, and Ariel's is about Lord of the Flies. Their essays will be made available on our website with more information. As always, if you have information you'd like me to share, please fill out the form on our website or email me. You can find information to both at thevideoessay.com. And now, here's our interview with Jake Swinney. And now we come to the interview portion of our show, and I'm super excited to be sitting down here with Jacob T. Swinney. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Will. Thank you for having me. It's my uh, first ever podcast, so pretty excited about it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we're we're definitely super excited to have you. And, you know, you have amassed a huge following on Vimeo. Some of your videos have had millions of views, but I think a lot of people probably don't know a lot about you and who you are in your background. So give us a sense of who Jake Swinney is and how you came to be interested in making video essays. For sure. So um, I got my first camera when I was nine years old because I just love movies. And my mom got me a video camera. I just filmed everything and made some really, really terrible short films, if you want to call them that. And I had no idea what I was doing with editing or anything. And I was using those uh, just the little VHS tapes. So I didn't have any idea how to edit any of this footage. So when I needed other coverage, I'd actually just pause the camera and get the other angle and then hit record again. So it was it was just the worst thing you can ever imagine. So once once I got into high school, I got uh, like a watered down version of uh, Adobe Premiere. It was called, uh, I think it was called Adobe Premiere Elements. Um, I got that and just kind of started like playing around with some stuff that I was uh, shooting now on digital cameras. Once I figured out how to kind of get movies on my computer, I was kind of making little super cuts here and there, not really doing anything with them. When I got into actually doing video essays, it was in um, college actually. It was my senior year and I was taking a class on uh, cinephilia. So the whole concept of the class was you would talk about how movies made you feel. It wasn't really analyzing movies at all. It just it was like all personal opinion. So the very last paper for the year, it's like a big 12 page final essay. Uh, my professor had came up to me and said, that he knew that I was into editing. He said that I could do a video essay instead and writing the you know 12-page paper. And obviously, I'm like, anything to get out of writing a 12-page paper sounds pretty good to me. He asked if I knew what a video essay was, and I, I hadn't at the time. So he showed me Kevin B. Lee's The Spielberg Face, and I was just really impressed by it because I'd never seen anything like it. Like, I, you know, they weren't as prevalent as they are now. So at the time, I just wasn't accustomed to seeing anything like that online. And I watched that several times to kind of get a... Uh, you know, an idea of what I was going to try to do with this this video because there was no 
restrained as far as topic goes. You could choose anything. So, I mean, you give somebody like not a specific movie, not a specific director, not even a specific topic. So, you know, the, the possibilities are endless. So, um, obviously people that follow me on Twitter know I'm obsessed with Paul Thomas Anderson. So obviously I picked him for my, my, uh, final, final paper or video essay. And since it was like just personal, they wanted to, to discuss how you feel about certain aspects of their films. I just chose music because I think Paul Thomas Anderson uses music in a way that's just phenomenal. So I just basically uh, talked for, I think it was like a, probably like a six minute video essay about why I like how Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson uses music. I turned it in, got an A on it, fortunately, so passed the class. But my teacher uh, called me into his office after he had graded it and said that he thought it was phenomenal and that he really thinks I should pursue something with this. And at the time, I'm you know, like, there's no way you can make a career out of doing things like this. Like it just, it just doesn't make sense to me. So he suggested that I put it on Vimeo and I did, and it got into a, a couple like big Vimeo groups, like uh, audiovisual C and 35 millimeter. And it kind of started like taking off a little bit. I don't think it's on Vimeo now though. I'm pretty sure I, uh, I made it private after a few years once I started getting a bit of a following on there, just cause I just, I think it's pretty terrible now. And I just didn't really know what I was doing at the time. Like I said, it was my maiden voyage there. Basically after that, once I graduated, uh, I live in Maryland and it was just, it was kind of hard to find work in uh, the film industry. So in my spare time, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna make a few more of these just for fun, just to kind of have them on my Vimeo page. And I started doing kind of like the supercut style, compiling shots that are similar. Or I did one on like silhouettes and lens flares and kind of like looking back, just a bunch of like kind of just arbitrary stuff. They started getting some views for some reason. I don't know why, because I look back and I'm just I'm very embarrassed by these videos. Like like I said, I made a lot of them private now. And uh, I think it, it was the, the video I did on lens flares. It, uh, it got tweeted by Edgar Wright, so it went nuts. It like, got a ton of views, and I was like, you know, maybe there's a, there's something to this. So I just kind of kept making them, trying to build up a following, and I ended up getting a bunch of followers on Vimeo. Uh, next thing I know, I started getting some emails from some like fairly big-name sites asking me to make these for money. So I kind of like became a video essayist like, by trade, which was which kind of mind blowing. Like I just didn't think that was a thing. So that, that lasted, you know, several years. Uh, I would still consider myself a video essayist, but I'm not like full time anymore. I'm I'm sure, as you know, with the downfall of Fandor and everything like that, it's kind of tapered off a bit. So now I'm doing it more just for personal reasons, just, you know, cause I enjoy doing them and I hopefully people, you know, still like watching them. So that's kind of where I'm at now with it. Let's transition to talking about Fandor. Two episodes ago, I had Philip Rubaker on, who talked a little bit about how he began working at Fandor. So tell us how you were recruited to start making video essays there, and, and what was your time like? Uh, what was your time like working for that website? Yeah, so um, this all started, I think it was in 2015. So the first site that ever reached out to me was um, IndieWire, and they, they asked me to start making some videos for their video essay um portion of their website, which was called Press Play back then. So I was doing that um, quite a bit. And then Slate reached out to me and asked if I would start doing some videos for them, which was mostly uh, supercut type work. And um, then I had some like curve, like oddballs thrown at me, like Playboy reached out to me and asked me to do some videos for them, which was all supercuts. I did like one, like it was random stuff. I did like Star Wars and Batman and it was all just like, you know, stuff that's going to get views. Um, and then was this for social media or for yeah, like yeah, it was, articles? It was on their site. Um, 
I, I think they're all gone now, actually. So, um, it, like, they would just want something for, like, the release of Batman versus Superman. They wanted, like, something mm-hmm. to tie into with, like, a Batman-related video. So I did this super cut that was movies that reference Batman just in dialogue. It was just kind of, like, simple stuff like that. Like, not really any highbrow, like, you know, theoretical type stuff. Then, and I think it was 2015 or 2016, um... Kevin B. Lee actually reached out to me on Facebook, who was more or less running uh, Fandor's video essay department back then, and um, shot me a message. And I think it was because he had seen First and Final Frames. Not positive. I'm pretty sure that was the one. Um, he reached out and asked if I'd want to start making some videos for, for Fandor. And I was like, yeah, I was like, totally, let's do that. So slowly over the years, Fandor kind of became a full-time gig for me. So I took about probably like four or five months off from Fandor in 2017. I actually got asked to come out to Santa Monica for a while to uh, edit trailers. So I was out, I just, like it was, when you're editing trailers, it's like a full-time grind. Like I just had no time for anything else. So I just, I couldn't do any video essays on the side. So when I came back to Maryland, I reached out to Fandor. I was like, hey, you know, I'm back now and I really would like to, to kick up uh, my output. I really just want to, you know, try to make this a full-time gig. They had gone through so many changes throughout the years. So when I first started with Kevin, it was kind of like whatever I wanted to do, I could do. It was no restrictions. I don't even think there was back then that there was a restriction on um, how long your video could be. And there was no like restrictions on content or topics, really. And then they went through this really strange phase where like every video had to be under, I think, 90 seconds they all had to have like hard-coded subtitles. So we had to put the subtitles in, which was a pain. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's when they got rid of, uh, you couldn't use any, you had to use like all canned music, like royalty-free music. It was basically, I was calling them eye candy videos because it was just something that like you, if you're scrolling through Facebook, you would stop and watch it. And basically the their motto was that you want it, they wanted content that somebody could like just watch on their break and not have to turn on the volume. So mm-hmm. something they could watch in that little Facebook square. We even had to make them in the square ratio, like the, the Facebook ratio. That's tough. So that was a pain. <laughs> to, yeah, especially if you're like using some like really cinematic, you know, wide shots or something that look terrible. So um, watching Lawrence of, of Arabia in yeah, <laughs> Facebook. exactly in this little tiny square. <laughs> so um, yeah, so that was kind of a bummer, but you know, it was decent money for you know getting to watch and talk about movies all day. I mean, it was, I mean, you can't really complain about that. Um, and then I believe it was shortly after that transition is kind of what made Kevin want to get out of there is, is what kind of what I gathered. And then it got through some very strange shakeups. I believe Philip talked about this, that we just had a, a few people that kind of came in and took over. They just, it, it kind of seemed like they didn't really watch movies maybe (laughs) uh, it was very strange and then there was a bunch of legal stuff happened and we kept getting more and more restrictions but then we kind of we reached after all this turbulence we reached uh what i like would say was like the golden era for me it was these two people in charge that i really got along well with and kind of had similar tastes on everything i was very very vocal that i wanted more work because I just, I don't like editing corporate videos and stuff like that. Like I was, you know, this wasn't work for me, like to get up and be able to talk about, you know, David Fincher or somebody like that's, that's not work. And I was getting paid for it and it was just, it was incredible. So I was really pushing 
to uh, to do this full time. And they're like, all right, well, how many videos do you think you can make a month? And I was like, give me 20. Like, I'll be able to do 20 a month. And they're like, that's absurd. We're not giving you 20. They're like, let's start you with five. So I was like, all right, okay, whatever. So first month of doing that, I knocked out five, no problem. So they kind of were like testing me and every month I was getting more videos. So uh, that basically led to the uh, CEO of Fandor actually gave me a call and asked if I wanted to um, move out to San Francisco to be their in-house editor, which totally caught me off guard. And I would have had the move. And I think it was like, it was like three or four weeks. It was like not a lot of notice at all. So I told him that possibly like down the road, but I would like to, you know, try it remotely just to see how that would work. At that point, I was guaranteed it was somewhere between I think like 10 and 15 video essays a month. And they gave me a decent pay boost on each video uh, in exchange for exclusivity. So I could do no more video essays uh, for another website. I could do them for myself personally, but I just I couldn't go back to like IndieWire or somebody and like do a freelance uh, video essay. So basically, I I had my dream job. I mean, every day and 15 videos a month, the Fandor videos were between three and five minutes a piece, uh, all voiceover. So, I mean, it was a lot of work. I mean, that it was taking up, you know, a full month to do those. So um, I was like, all right, this is my career now. Like I can say I'm a video essay. It's like, I don't need to take on freelance gigs. I'm making enough money to support myself just doing this, which is, was just mind blowing to me. And then Actually, I saw it on Twitter. I had just finished my first video essay for the month of December, which was just a really tough video also, just to add insult to injury. I sent in the rough cut and I nobody got back to me. So I was like, this is strange. So, you know, I followed up like radio silence. I'm like, huh, this video is supposed to go up today. Like, I don't I don't understand what's going on. And then I get on Twitter and I see the Variety article. It's like Fandor lays off all of its employees. So I was just obviously sick to my stomach. I was like, all right, what now? And I finally get on the uh the phone with somebody and they just basically told me like sorry like that's it we're packing up so yeah i was like all right well am i getting paid for you know the 12 videos that i did in november they're like yeah of course of course you're you know you're contracted into that we'll, we'll pay you for the one that you did for december too even though it won't air you know we'll still we'll pay you for it that was in november and it's Sept- September now and uh, not a dollar has been sent to me. So they owe me quite a bit of money still, which is rather unfortunate. Uh, and it really left a sour taste in my mouth. Like I, I didn't make another video essay in- until May, I think, uh, which was for no film school. Right. And I, yeah, I even, I stopped doing my personal videos. I just just very, very recently, like maybe like three weeks ago, back got back into doing personal videos. I, I, I just, it, I was just soured on it, I think. It just really kind of like, I was just so prolific for so long and it just got like the rug pulled out from under me. And I just, I, I didn't even want to like watch a movie <laughs> for a while, which is strange because normally when I'm bummed, like that's what I want to do is watch movies. Just, I just wanted to distance myself from it. No, I think that makes complete sense. And to jump back a little bit, if you go to your Vimeo page, you have... Uh, a range of series of video essays you have not directed by to the sounds of. And I'm wondering, how, how did you come up with these series? Was this a way for you to just have, you know, a, like like a, like a baseline of ideas to make video essays? Um, and, and how do you, in creating a series, what's interesting to me is that then these video essays can kind of be in dialogue with one another, meaning that you can understand, okay, this is how Steven Spielberg uses sound as opposed to when compared to Paul Thomas Anderson. So talk a little bit about the creation of those series. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you brought those up, actually. Um, so when I first started doing these these Vimeo videos, like I said, I was just kind of doing like the, the supercut style. And once once Edgar Wright had shared the the lens flare videos, when I was like, I need to start making these weekly, 
the first hearing installment was for um, Quentin Tarantino. I'm not exactly sure how it came about. Um, I think it was kind of like just playing around and just like more or less just like an editing exercise. I was like, you know, this is pretty cool. You know, I'll start doing this montage of really fast, you know, really fast moving, you know, sounds. And I, um, I uploaded it my like a day later. My phone was just going nuts because I get the um, email notifications and it was all these people commenting on the video and it I'm not sure where it's at now, but it had gotten like like 100,000 views over like a couple days and I'm not even sure from where they came from. So I didn't really have any plans to turn that into a series, but just because it, it did so well online, I was like, people like this kind of content. I'm gonna keep making these like with the Fandor stuff. I had a purpose. It was to teach you know, the audience about XYZ. But for a lot of my personal stuff, it's like, hey, I think this is a cool idea. You know, let's see if people also enjoy watching this kind of stuff. And then with Not Directed By, that was inspired by, actually, that was a pitch that I did for uh, Slate that got rejected, actually. It was uh, Not not Directed By Terrence Malick. And it was because I had just watched um, Upstream Color. And I was like, wow, this is very Malicky. <laughs> so I was like, you know what? Maybe like, Malik might be the most ripped off director ever. So I started like kind of doing some research and going back through my movies and like seeing what other films did that. And this was crazy, actually. Uh, Paul Schrader shared it on his personal Facebook page. And uh, he, well, he <laughs> I should rephrase. He tried to share it and he he accidentally shared one of my Coen Brothers videos instead because he, co- <laughs> he copied the wrong link. But um, somebody had commented on they're like, love the Coen Brothers. And he wrote back to him. He's like, oops, wrong video. Uh, I meant to share this one. And then he gave me like a like cool little write up, which was awesome because it's Paul Schrader. He said like Swinney captures the uh, imitation of Malik with like with like biting criticism or something like that. It was like it was, I, don't, I can't remember the exact words of it. But um, yeah, so I was like, you know, what? I'll try another one of these because I mean, that one started doing you know fairly well after that. So I did. Um, it, it, that, that's a that's a tough series to do because you need to find a director whose style is so distinct that you can see it in other people's work. So as much as I love PTA and I think he has a distinct style, I don't think you could necessarily make an entire video of like this is people you know ripping off PTA style because his like his style is so unique and distinctive, but it's still hard to put your finger on. So I was like, what's another director that like Malik is like a obvious glaring in your face like oh this is you know his or her style and i was like ah david lynch for sure and another one that's been uh copied a bunch so i did uh not directed by david lynch which was honestly one of the most uh fun i've I've, most fun i've ever had doing a video essay because i basically decided to rather than doing like a supercut style like i did with malik i wanted to make almost like a lynchian short film out of movies that he hadn't directed. So I was using, um, I, I found, I, I never really noticed this, but I was like going through some films. I noticed that a lot of uh, Aronofsky's early work is like sort of Lynchian, which was surprising to me. So there's a few Aronofsky films. Um, Ryan Gosling's directorial debut, Lost River. He's actually in both. He's in Malick and Lynch because uh, there, there's a lot a lot of both. But um, that one didn't do as well. So uh, I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe, maybe it was the format. So that ended, I ended up scrapping my third installment, which was not directed by Wes Anderson, which is still, I believe, on one of my old laptops still. So I, I still want to go back and revisit that at some point because that's another one that I, especially like now, because uh, this was like pre Paddington and Paddington 2. So once I saw those, I was like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta revisit this. But that's another one whose style is just so overwhelmingly distinct. Like you can just see it. Like, you know what I mean? It's, it's there. So you can see it uh, appear in other people's work. Yeah. I hope you, I hope you revisit that. And I love the, the Schrader anecdote. 
going off that, a lot of your videos are are sort of montages and very precisely edited together sequences of a bunch of different movies. And I am honestly getting overwhelmed just thinking about beginning such a project. And so are you just, do you just have an insane mental Rolodex where you're able to remember all these things and draw upon it at will when you set out to make a video essay like the, you know, know, not directed by David Lynch, do you begin researching people who have written about Lynch's influence and then go to those films and find things. Talk a little bit about your, your, your creative process as you begin these large editing projects. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I get that. I get asked that a lot actually. And I think I, I guess I do have a decent mental Rolodex just from watching so many movies and for, uh, studying them so much in college. So I do do quite a bit of research though. And one thing that I uh, think really goes overlooked with doing research is, uh, IMDb has a section for keyword searches, which is really extensive, actually. So you can go on IMDb and use a keyword. So um, say you're like, you know, looking for a movie, like I said earlier with the uh, the red herring video, when I was doing research for that, you can actually type in keyword red herring and it'll bring up like a list of movies that use red herrings. Or you can do it on TV tropes as well, which is another really good resource for video essays. A lot of time I'll approach a video and I already have these ideas in my head. But for instance, just to use uh, the David Lynch video again, as an example, I would like type into Google something like David Lynch homage or David Lynch ripoff or something like that. And you can put the quotations on it to get the, you know, the actual, like have it used in the same order. So, um, you know, do quotation David Lynch, David Lynch ripoff end quote. And then you get all these articles that are saying this movie's nothing but a David Lynch ripoff or whatever. I'm like, oh, okay, well that one will work. So a few like movies in those kind of videos, like I've actually never even seen, but once I get a hold of them and go through the footage, I'm like, oh wow, this is actually, you know, super Lynchian. But that's definitely one of the most time consuming aspects of doing video essays. Like with Fandor, I think the reason they gave me so much work is just because I'm fairly quick with editing. So I was to the point that I could write, record, and edit a video in one day. So, and sometimes two, I, I, I did, <laughs> I'm not proud of these videos. Cause I don't, I think that my, <laughs> I think that my, uh, my speed probably shows uh, a little bit, but I did uh, two videos for Fandor in one day and it, they're just, they're not my, they're not my best work, but um, I got it, I got it done. But um, the, the, I'm, I'm pretty fast with the editing and the technical stuff. It's the writing and the research phase that takes me the longest. And it's it's always, I'm sure everyone's like this, that you release something and then you're like, oh God, I forgot about this one. That happens every time. And the worst part is that somebody online is going to call you out for forgetting something, no matter what. It's always going to be, where is fill in the blank. But yeah, I have so many movies harvested at this point. I, I'm just from doing so many video essays. It's like they're almost like imprinted in my brain. Like I'll be like, oh, that shot's, you know, right here. And I found that when the topic is kind of more wide open and vague, it's so much harder to find footage because it's just, it's just wide open. So for like no film school, I did this video, literally the whole entire video was just on pans, just panning, which is the simplest camera move there is. So like, if you were to say to me, um, you know, like pick a movie that has like something specific, like an extreme close up of somebody's eyes opening, I would rattle a whole bunch, like off the top of my head, you know, like your vanilla sky and just keep, you, you can keep going. That's like a very specific thing. But if you say name a movie that uses a pan, you're like, all of them, like every movie pans so that then it gets really difficult to kind of narrow it down and find footage because you're just so overwhelmed. So it's like, where do you even start with something like that? So um, I, I did one similar for Fandor, which is on camera movements. And uh, it was the, the we did pan, tilt, 
dolly and boom i think was the the four camera movements i covered and i remember getting to tilt which is uh you know the camera uh going up and up and down which everyone always says pan up and pan down which you can't do you can only pan left and right so that's really what inspired the video i was like god it sounds like it's tilt up and tilt down you can't <laughs> you can't pan up and pan down so that was the whole reason i made the video because just so many people even like filmmakers like professional filmmakers i hear them say you know pan out or pan up which is it's just you can't do that it's impossible so um yeah i made this video i remember getting to tilt and i was just i just drew a blank i was like i don't know i, I was like i don't know any movie that uses a tilt and obviously every single single movie uses a tilt but just nothing came to mind so it's it's definitely a little easier to um to find footage when it's it's like a specific topic finding tilts is easy it's finding noteworthy tilts exactly right? yeah like that is the that is the challenge you know no one cares of just a banal unnoteworthy tilt it's you know I, I, i'm trying to what was an example of a a tilt that you use that we might know i i live by the motto that when in doubt, just import all of PTA's movies and you'll find something. <laughs> you'll find something. So um, I pulled in all of his movies. Like, I'm not, it's not even a joke. I actually did do this. And I went to There Will Be Blood. I'm like, oh, I was like, perfect. There's that very significant tilt when Daniel Plainview is, both his legs are broken. And he climbs out of the well and it, the camera tilts up to the mountains. And I think it was Tarantino actually talked about how significant that tilt was in an interview somewhere. I wouldn't go as far as Tarantino did, but it, it basically shows you this enormous task at hand. It's, you know, it establishes him crawling back to civilization as this monumental thing that he has to do with just a simple tilt. And I, actually, I think there's a slight pan with the tilt. So either way, Tarantino claims that that one shot justifies everything Daniel Plainview does from that point on, which it, it doesn't. <laughs> it definitely doesn't. But it, it justifies why he's the way he is, maybe just with that one little shot. So speaking of large scale projects, and I'll remind our listeners again that if they have not yet watched First and Final Frames, which chances are you're probably one of the over two million people who has watched it, um, but for this for this episode, you should really go rewatch it at thevideoessay.com. Um, I think you'll it makes more sense to watch it now before we discuss than after. But again, if you watch it after, that's fine. We can forgive you. And 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 my first question about First and Final Frames is a question that I meant to ask you earlier about your work, but I'm just going to segue here now, and that is. What is the unique advantage of allowing images to just be their own argument and to do their own thing? In this video essay, you don't have any voiceover. There's no annotations. In the essay itself, you don't even tell us which films are on screen. So, so talk about that, that formal choice and what you see as the relative advantage of it. I was like, like I said, I was against doing voiceover for so long just because I didn't like listening to myself. Um, and then when I got into the Fandor stuff... Obviously, I kind of got over that a bit. But when you're doing voiceover, you're telling the viewer uh, what you think and you're giving them your opinion. When you just present images to them with no context, they, they can make up whatever they want. They, they can just come up with their own interpretations. So with first and final frames, uh, I did debate doing like a video that actually analyzed and like uh, talked about the significance between the two shots. And at the end of the day, I was just like, I think this video kind of speaks for itself and you can just let it play out. So the whole thing came to uh, fruition. I was in uh, the theater. I was watching Gone Girl. And uh, when Gone Girl ended, I was like, oh, it was like at the time I thought it was the same shot. Like that just ended with the, the opening shot. I was like, that was really cool. 
I wonder what other movies do that. So I kind of just started doing some research with no idea of doing a video yet. It was just kind of just out of curiosity. And um, when Gone Girl came out and I actually had the movie, I realized the two shots were different. And the difference is what makes that opening and closing bookend so impactful. But just, just with Rossman Pike's slightly different facial expression. Like if you put those two images side by side, it's like it's a bone chilling. Once you, you don't even really need to see the movie to get somewhat of an idea of what, what has happened. I mean, you're not, you're not going to get all the, you know, the intricate plot details, but you're going to realize that, you know, stuff went down. So, um, I was like, you know, let's do a video side by side that shows movies that have, uh, the same opening closing shot, or at least like strikingly similar. And I realized that I was like, man, that's not a, you know, an abundance. So I was like, yeah, no, this video is not going to go anywhere. I'm going to scrap it. And then I came back to it just because I, I had put a lot of time into finding, you know, the movies with the, the similar shots. So I came back to it and I was like, all right, well, what, what if I try this with not just similar or identical shots, but they could be drastically different shots too, because putting these images side by side, it's still going to tell a story. So that's kind of how this whole video kind of kind of formed. And it became the idea of not like, hey, these movies have similar shots. It became what can we learn from looking at the first shot and the last shot next to each other? I worked on it for a long time. Um, just in my, in my spare time, I just I would always go back to it. And that's another one that's hard to do research for because it's hard to like type in like, you know, into Google, what movies have, you know, significant opening and closing shots that somewhat relate to each other. Yeah, kind of like when I'd see a movie that I thought worked, I'd throw it in there. And it, I, it became like an obsession of mine that when I'd go to the movies, I'd be like, all right, like I can't, I still to this day, when I go to see a movie, I'm like, I can't wait to see what the opening shot is. So um, the last movie I saw in theaters was uh, It Chapter Two. And I was excited to see what the opening shot is. And I was like, oh, I was like, great, really solid, nice opening shot. Perfect. And I was like, all right, I can't wait to see what they close with. And then it closed on like something that's not very significant to the opening shot. So it was a bummer. But it's like I actually get like bummed out when that when it doesn't happen now. But yeah, anyway, I um, yeah, I put this video together and I was like, you know, this is this is cool. You know, this this is good enough. And I put it on Vimeo and it just went nuts. I like I, I still don't know how I don't know if somebody shared it or what had happened, but I remember like over the course of a month, it was like well over 500,000, I think, which I think, like I said, for Vimeo is, is like surprising. And it just so it just happened randomly. There wasn't you didn't you didn't do anything to like help it go viral. No, no. It's just like also first final frames was very, very like a very early video for me. Like it was I think I made it in 2015. So I had just started. I don't even think I was working for, like, I wasn't even working for Fandor yet. So, and that's kind of the video that had made all these different sites reach out to me, I think, just because it, I don't even think so much that it's a good video is that it just got my name out there and they're like, oh, this guy makes this kind of stuff. Because so many times, like, people, like, will ask me, like, you know, what's your best video? And everyone always tells me First Amount of Frames is my best video, but it's really not, like, it's very simple. It's, there's no like intricate editing. It's the, the one of the simplest videos I've ever had to actually cut together. I mean, it's, you know, just reducing a clip to 50%, moving it to one side, doing the same thing on the other side, and that's the video. Like, that, that's it. And it just went nuts. Like, people started making their own. There was, a, there was like, a TV version now. There's a, a horror movie version. There's a ton of different versions of it on YouTube and Vimeo. 
That's really cool. And and going back to the original video essay, one of the things that I noticed about it was it seemed like most of the films selected had been maybe released in the past like 20-ish years or so. Um, of course, you do go you go back and you use the the amazing first and final shots from uh, The Searchers. And But I, I'm wondering, was that intentional? Does that just reflect your own personal taste or talk a little bit about that? So... I got a lot of criticism for that, actually. Like, people wanted me to include older films. The problem is that so many older films close and open with, uh, like, establishing shots. Or uh, or they have credits over their first and last shot. So, it just... I, I try to avoid anything with, with text over it. I drive myself crazy, like, deciphering sometimes, like, what is actually the opening shot. Like, I, I spend so much time on that. Like, I still go back... I <laughs> still think about this one in the first movie uh, I use boyhood so for the opening shot it's him uh, he's, he's laying down in the grass staring up at the sky and then the final shots him obviously like 12 years later so I was like you know what these might not be like super significant but it's just the idea of having the same actor as you know a, you know a boy and then you know a young man and then like I, I, this one still like keeps me up at night that I'm like technically that movie opens with a shot of the sky but it has the the credits over it so it's like what actually is the, the you know the first shot and even um, Mark Webb and I kind of went back and forth on Twitter about it. He directed 500 Days of Summer and I had, I had posted 500 Days of Summer on the Twitter account and uh, we had like a disagreement on what was the actual first and final frame of that movie because I think, I don't remember exactly whose side was whose, but I, I think I said it was like the animation that says uh, the, the, the number like, you know, if you've seen that movie, it like tells you what day of the story it's on. And I think he said something different if, if I remember correctly, but yeah, so a lot of like older like classic Hollywood films, they, they it's just it was conventional filmmaking. They open with you know an establishing shot, and then they'll close with you know it'll be a f- very you know far away shot of like the, you know this is the end, and the end gets kind of scribbled over in that fancy font. So I feel like with like the new Hollywood movement kind of in forward is where it started. Like when convention conventionality kind of got thrown out the door is when filmmakers were being more creative with how they open and close their movies. So they didn't feel like they had to open, open with an establishing shot. They could open with, you know, like um, the graduates, a good example of um, good opening and closing shot. And I feel like those movies are kind of where this sort of thing started to, uh, you know, come to fruition. And I mean, that's not to say all, like you mentioned the searchers, the searchers is probably one of the best of all time. I'd say that probably that's probably my favorite that I've ever used. And it was one of the first ones that came to mind after I saw Gone Girl. I think like the the new wave of filmmakers were just trying different things storytelling wise. So I, like, I don't know if it's, it's, it's hard to say unless you actually, you know, talk to the filmmaker themselves. But um, I like to think that that's somewhere in the thought process, whether it's subconscious or not. Even like if they're starting their movie with this, they just naturally end with this shot, whether, you know, it was in their head to make it that way or not. Well, I mean, I think that's a pretty significant observation in in finding, and I think probably one that you would not have come to unless you had really started playing around in in this way. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I meant to answer this earlier. Um, you had mentioned the first video not having the the film titles. I was totally against having any text on screen for that first video, and I really didn't want to for uh, the following installments, but. My uh, biggest critic, the biggest criticism that I received on the first installment was that people didn't know what movie was on the screen. So I just caved and I, I did it for the next two. But the reason I didn't want it is because I wanted people to have these two shots completely out of context and have. Obviously, if you've seen the film, you're going to recognize what they are but for people that haven't. I wanted to see 
if they could put together a story in their head based on just the opening and closing shot. So I included a list of films in the description. So, you know, if people wanted to go look, they could. But I was just kind of, it was like I said, this was kind of like an experimental video for me. So I just wanted to see like kind of what people would, uh, you know, piece together on their own. It didn't really, it didn't seem that that was uh, well received. So I, I, like I said, I caved for the the next two, which I, I do think definitely takes away from it. That's why the first one's still my favorite because I think. Yeah. And plus, when the text is on screen, your eyes are going back and forth, and it's 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 you know it's not as enveloping. Yeah, I agree. I I I'm with you in preferring the not the text on screen thing. Oh, thank you. You're uh, one of the few. <laughs> but but this exercise reminds me of um, something that um, my former advisor in undergrad at Middlebury, Jason Mattel has done, which is deformative videographic criticism. The goal of which is to take a film, run it through all these different exercises, slowing it down, assembling different shots, and trying to break it in a new way to break it in such a way that you understand something about it that you previously didn't know. And it it seems like that's a lot of what's going on here. And so I'm going to hit you with, with a question and and obviously it's all open to interpretation and people will walk away from the essay with different things. But by breaking films in this way and reassembling them, what is the benefit to you other than analyzing trends in the industry? What 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 have you come to understand about these films by doing this? Who is a doozy? Um, <laughs> it's hard to say just one thing. I, I just think I just have a better overall understanding of just storytelling and cinema as a whole by doing this kind of stuff. And to a point, it's it's ruined a little bit of the uh, the magic of movies because when I it's hard to turn off the uh, you know the analysis button once you get so deep into this stuff. So I, like I it's it's still hard for me to sit down and, like watch a movie and just be like wrapped up in the story and like the actual movie like i'm like okay well what does this particular shot mean what does this decision mean oh that opening shot i can't wait for the ending shot like (laughs) that kind of stuff but i just think it gives me just like i said like just a better understanding of just really every aspect of it and a a better appreciation um like i said like you know i'm probably over analyzing a lot of stuff like i said some of the first and final frame stuff is a stretch and i'm sure a lot of my other stuff is you know totally not intentional but i don't think stuff has to be intentional to be worthy of analysis i mean even if it's on a subconscious level i mean that's something that was chosen to be shown to us in this way like i just did um this video on uh the master which is one of my favorite movies ever obviously is paul thomas anderson but um i'm noticing a trend here yeah yeah it's good it's, it's everyone on twitter always rags on me for talking about pta and inside lewin davis too much but um it's funny because I, I don't know if you feel this way, but I somehow feel like everyone really respects PTA and loves all of his movies, but he's also underappreciated. Yeah, totally. And I don't know how to like reconcile that. <laughs> it is really strange. Yeah, because he's he's another one that I feel like you go out on the street and, you know, random person, random people aren't going to know who he is, like, say, like Spielberg or Tarantino or Scorsese or somebody. But like in the film community, it's like, you know, he's God, like, the well, you know, for in my circles, at least. But yeah, I think it's because he, like I said, his his movies really do cater to, you know, cinephiles. He's not going to have like a blockbuster movie out there or something like that. Like, I mean, like, I think, you know, Phantom Thread's like a masterpiece and very few people that I know that aren't like within my film groups have even heard of it. It's just, it's, it's crazy to me. But um, so yeah, I was doing this video on um, The Master and 
It was inspired by this video I'd seen online years and years ago that somebody took uh, The Shining and played it forwards and backwards at the same time, just kind of like overlaid. But I wanted to kind of riff off that a little bit and not play the entire movie, but like pick shots that I thought were significant with the master. And I found some really cool findings when doing it. It was, I had a lot of fun making the video. And when I put it up, you know, I got a lot of criticism for basically saying like, none of this is intentional. Like none of this is worth looking at because it's all coincidence. And sure, like it probably is. I mean, I, I doubt, I mean, PTA is a genius, but he's, I don't know if he's, you know, if any filmmaker for that matter has enough prowess to have their movie sync up in, at some point, you know, with the shots overlay, that's a weird thing to think about. Like you just wouldn't think about doing something like that. But The Master is a movie that just deals so much with the idea of going backwards. Even a movie that deals with the idea of like double images. I mean, uh, like there's a whole scene with, you know, the Rorschach test at the beginning of that movie. And the movie repeats itself quite a bit with the ending shot mirrors a shot that's in early in the movie. So I was like, you know, this 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 is a movie that deserves this kind of treatment. Like this is a movie that deserves to be overanalyzed and poured over and I, I you know, a lot of people are going to disagree with that, but um whether it be intentional or not, it's still fun to analyze and look at and think what if. So, you know, when two shots sync up, yeah, it's probably coincidence. Like I doubt, especially being that that movie had to get cut down so much. It's, it's not even the final cut of the movie. I'm sure there's probably a four hours director's cut somewhere. It's still it's still fun. Like that's everybody seems to be so like concerned with like, what are you proving here? It's like not every video has to has to like prove something. It could be something like, hey, let's get a conversation going. Like not every video has to you, not every video has to have like a home run point. You just be like, hey, let, like let's talk about this. And it's you know if you're a fan of movies, it's it's fun to talk about movies. Like that's why we're talking right now. We <laughs> we both like movies. Totally. I think the thing I like most about video essays and the emergence of things like you're doing of just kind of posting vid short videographic comparisons on Twitter is that there's like a playfulness to it. It's not meant to be like serious in the traditional sense. Like, as you say, like it's meant to start conversations and, and talk about the things that we love. So I, I can't stand that like that that seriousness. Like, why can't we just be like, well, this is really cool and interesting. Let's Let's get excited about it. Exactly. I mean, I'm not a critic. I'm not a professor. Like, I would never claim to be. I don't think I know enough to be either one. But I just really love movies. So it's, you know, I can, it's making these videos to get a discussion going. I mean, that's that's more than enough for me. I mean, like, I, I don't need to set out with every video to break new ground or, you know, come up with some, like giant idea it's like let's just you know look at this and see you know let's get a conversation going let's see where this goes so that's that's yeah i definitely think you're a critic but um <laughs> i appreciate the i appreciate the sentiment yeah i don't know it's uh i even i have a hard time in videos even saying anything negative it was uh one of my most polarizing videos for Fandor was on the DCEU versus the MCU, which like looking back, I should have known better. Like I have no idea why I even tried that. And I should, well, it, that's kind of the video that got me more work because that one did really well just because it was, you know, a comic book video. So it got a lot of clicks, but I had a really hard time saying anything negative about the DCEU. And <laughs> I remember like even like dialing back the script a little bit because I was like, eh, I really don't want to say anything bad about a movie because, you know, it's regardless, like, I mean, somebody made a movie. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Like, I, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, put it down in any way. And that's, I, I could never be like an actual critic. Cause like, there's no way I could say that I didn't like a movie like, you know, right out and like, have, you know, that the director's probably going to see it and that I was saying something bad about it. 
So I, I try to love all movies. Like, I hate to keep going back to them, but I'm going to because I talk about them all the time. But PTA said something along the lines. Um, I don't remember the exact quote, but like, no movie's bad. It's like, you know, it's somebody made this because they thought it was good. And, you know, there's a lot of people that enjoy it. So it's, it's so subjective. You're a positive critic. You just talk about what you love, which I think is fine. Analyzing. And we were talking about the seriousness that sometimes people, you know, how people respond seriously to videos that are meant to be playful in nature. And I think that's a perfect segue to talking about the art of overanalyzing movies. Now, uh, this is the video essay by Now You See It that you chose for us to talk about in depth. And it's an essay that you selected in your list of the best video essays of 2018 for the Sight and Sound magazine poll. So, my first question is, why did you select this essay? Why do you find it compelling? So I found this video by accident, actually. It came up on I, uh, my suggested videos on YouTube. And I was like, you know what? Like, I, th- I think The Shining was in the thumbnail. And I was like, you know, I think it was, I think it was probably, uh, probably because I was doing a video on The Shining at the time for, for Fandor. I clicked on it. And so when, when you do video essays, most of the time you want to open with like a hook. You want to have something that's going to keep the viewer watching. And this just had a really good hook to it. It's no sound or, you know, voiceover. It's just couple sentences just come up on a black screen and it's I won't ruin it for anybody who wants to watch it but it's a great hook to get the viewer sucked into this video but basically the concept of this video is about how what we were just talking about with first final frames and everything is people over analyzing movies I have to feel that the video is almost a little tongue-in-cheek because in sort of criticizing over analysis he's over analyzing and that's part of what makes video essaying so great is the over analyzing like it's 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 no fun just to go on the surface and be like oh you know a long shot means he's lonely like that's that's obvious like i mean you can you can pretty much gather that but he um he goes into some really great examples with um with the shining which i actually made a video that really over analyzes the shining probably but like that's a movie that merits over analyzing for sure and it's it's a really well done video with a unique concept that it's like the rare combination of um, commenting on video essays in a video essay while also, you know, making a video essay about movies. I totally agree. And I think you're spot on with the tongue in cheek nature of it, you know, which I I think is is brilliant because if, you know, he came out and said overanalyzing is important. Here's why I think a lot of people would be like, okay, like chill. But then if he came out and really critiqued overanalyzing, people would also say, whoa. So, you know, it, it really does a great job of kind of straddling that line and it really invites you in to have a conversation, I think. Um, it doesn't feel luxury at all, which I really like about that. How important is that when you are trying to engage with an audience that you're building? I mean, you have an you have an audience. And so how, how do you straddle that line between not wanting to be like condescending, but make it feel like more personal? Because I think this video essay does a really good, a really good job of that. Yeah. And it's, it's with his topic, it's something that's not really tangible. Like, you know, when, like I said, to go back to the video with Fandor and I explain frame rates or something, it's hard to not make that luxury because you're explaining something technical, like something that, you know, exists with this, with his videos is more kind of an idea. Again, like it wasn't really like, you know, a definitive, this is my point. Like this is what this video is. Like he kind of, it's 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 all kind of open for discussion. It's just kind of getting a dialogue going. 
that's what I really try to do with my, my voiceover stuff is I'm, I'm usually giving an opinion most of the time. And especially with like a lot of the Fandor stuff, like we did this video series called The Gush, which was assigned to a lot of us. I know I know Philip did a lot of them as well, where you just basically had to give your personal opinions about an, an actor. So something something like that. It's more free form. You're just kind of like talking about stuff that you enjoy about a certain actor. On the other side of that, when you're trying to explain something, you do kind of have to walk the line of not sounding, I don't want to say pretentious, but you have to like walk the line of like, like you said, not like being condescending, like, you know, oh, I know this, you know, this So like, I'm not an expert on anything. So I just, I think that what, with what I try to do is be like, oh, this is my thoughts on this just to get the ball rolling. And then, you know, you can take it wherever you want to go. I don't really think I have any videos where I'm like, this is 100% what happened. It's, it's, it's more or less just kind of like my interpretations on things. So I think as long as you do that, you're fine. A lot of video essays, don't do that. And that's, I think it's where a lot of them get a lot of uh, criticism in the, the comment section. Like, you know, you're wrong. So I always, <laughs> I always try to um, avoid saying anything that's definitive, you know, the, to keep it going. Like even, like I said, with a lot of the Fandor stuff, I would lead sentences with, well, well, I think to avoid, like <laughs> avoid any backlash. And because it, it like, it's all up to interpretation, unless you have an interview where the director is saying, oh, this is what I meant. We're, we're not going to, we're not going to know that. And I think that's why this, the, the overanalyzing video works so well because he he really toys with that with how video essays you know have to walk that line i think fantastic jacob thank you so much for being on the show really appreciate you taking the time thank you for having me man this was fun Thank you so much again to Jake for being on the show. Our next guest will be Adrian Martin, who will be talking on behalf of, of course, himself and Christina Alvarez Lopez, his partner in all videographic pursuits. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. And as always, you can access your homework for next week's episode at thevideoessay.com. Thank you so much and peace out. Peace out.